Good morning. Uh, most of you aren't paying attention yet. <laughs> I don't blame you. I mean, when that kind of stampede comes through, you know, you just, you watch your toes and, well, anyway, good morning. <laughs> it's good to be with you guys today. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jay. I get to lead this uh, community called Cultivate. Um, we call this our family gathering because uh, Jesus came to make us the family of God. And so he gave up his place in God's household. He came to earth uh, as in the form of a, a human, as a baby, um, to live the life that we couldn't live, the perfect life. He died the death that we deserved, and he rose again so that all who come to faith in him might be called the children of God. So that's what we celebrate this time of year, and uh, that's what we celebrate every Sunday morning. So we hope that you do feel like family when you're among us. It's good to have you here. Um, some, someone commented, like when I was walking around in the back, like, hey, you have your shirt tucked in. What does that mean? <laughs> and um, <laughs> uh, it means we're, we're, we're doing a dedication today. Uh, and uh, the, the child that we're dedicating is our newly adopted son, Anthony. You all know him and love him, and he's been part of our community for over two years now, but we get to celebrate that gift and, and then in a sense, give him back to the Lord now that he's officially ours. So we've been waiting two years to do this, so thanks for coming and, uh, and being a part of that. That'll be a little bit later. So I have to do some talking first, which you may or may not be excited about, but... Um, we, we started a series uh, last week uh, through the season of Advent, and we're doing something a little peculiar this year. We're looking at the last three chapters of the book of Revelation, which is the very last uh, book of the Bible. And so if you're going to follow along with us, it's really easy. You just open the back cover and then go a few pages, and you'll find us. Um, and, and it seems like a strange thing to do. Why in the world would we be looking at uh, the end of the story when it's the season of Christmas? Um, because Advent is a season, it's all about anticipating the arrival of Christmas, right? We, and we, we sang about it, we talk about it, this baby in a manger, uh, come to save the world. Uh, isn't that what we should be focusing on? Well, the, it turns out that the season of Advent is all about anticipation, It's about tapping into our longing for a better king and a better kingdom. And to my mind, at least, uh, there is no better way to get in touch with our longing for that king and his kingdom than by looking at the fullness of that kingdom when it comes. And so that's what we're doing. We're looking at the, the final coming. What will be true when he comes, not just the first time, but the second time, uh, because the, the reality is that we all, if you, you didn't, maybe you didn't realize this when you came this morning, uh, all of us live between two Christmases. We live in the space, in the gap between the first one and the last one. And so we're looking at the last one in a sense, the arrival of Jesus at the end, so that we can see with new eyes what the first one means and what it guarantees. So the, the question that we're asking kind of throughout the month of December is, what is the last Christmas, or how does the last Christmas enable us to live with hope today as well as longing for what's coming? How do we live with hope today and longing for what's coming? And um, the, the section that we're going to look at is all about hope. It's all about 
kindling our hope and our imagination for the world to come. So let's read it. Uh, It's Revelation 21. We're just going to do the first eight verses, verse 1 to 8. And it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, we we talked about that last part last week, so if you want to go back and listen to that, you can. But I I, I don't know about you, but when I read this story, and I've read it often, especially kind of leading up to this uh, series, I have difficulty with it. I have difficulty kind of grappling with the goodness of it. And I was wrestling with why how is it that I'm, I feel like I'm not able to sort of grab hold of, of all the, the, the goodness that I think God wants to, me to hear and to experience and to see as I read this again? And I, and I think the answer is, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I think the answer is because John paints a picture, John is the author, paints a picture that is so far outside of my experience that is so beyond what I tend to see in a day-to-day basis that it almost sounds too good to be true. Do you ever have that? Where it's like you're presented with such good news that you're like, I would love to believe that. But I'm too cynical to think that it might actually be true. Um, I, I used to think that this was a trait that was kind of inherent to me. And then I sort of realized that I'm from New England. I'm some, from like Western Massachusetts. And um, it's, it's kind of like everybody there too. And then I moved to New Jersey and realized that it's like here even more. <laughs> and I lived in Philadelphia too for 10 years. And boy, like, so it's like wherever I go, I find like, yeah, like we are a cynical bunch. Like we can find the dark, cloud in almost any silver lining, you know? And so when it it comes to passages like this, and this one in particular, where it's talking about the end of God's story, the culmination of history, 
God coming and dwelling with us and making everything new and all the tears and the pain being wiped away forever, there's a part of us, I think, that wonders if we're being a little too naive if we put all our chips on that square. You know, there's like this part of us where it's like, I want to hedge my bets a little bit. Because what if it's not true? And and so I, what I tend to do when I read passages like this is because I, I'm holding back, in a sense, some of my chips. I'm sort of hedging my bets that, that I don't know if I can really completely kind of sell out my entire life to this. And so I, I, I put some of my chips on things that seem like they're a little easier to come up with that number. And so I, I, you know, I, I put a few chips on a new phone. And when it comes up, I'm like, yes, I got this new phone, and it's great. And then a week goes by, and you're like, it's the same as the other one, you know? Or a new piece of furniture, or job well done, or, or house projects. That's been kind of my new one, where I'm like, I've got to get these projects done, because if I do, then we'll, be, like, we'll have peace on earth, or at least in my living room. And then I realize, like, it's, they're the same kids that were in the last living room, and there is no peace. <laughs> and I settle for lesser hopes, because a part of me still wonders, is, can, is this really true? And in, if you resonate with that doubt, with that questioning, with that cynicism, there is good news that we proclaim today. The good news that we proclaim today is that Jesus is calling us to live today with new eyes set upon the Christmas to come. That wherever, whatever you lack hope about, whatever you have done and whatever has been done to you, there is hope for you because God is bringing heaven to earth and renewing all things. That what He has done in Jesus, He will do for the entire universe, including you. And this is our true story. This is our true story. See, it's important for us to know where our story is going. Right? It's hard to, to live rightly if you don't understand where the story is heading. And I think... So much of our anxiety, so much of our doubt and wonder and and cynicism comes from a lack of being able to grapple with the end of our story. Or, Or maybe we've been taught an alternative version of that story that isn't actually found in the Bible. Um, I was listening to a guy talk one time, and he was he was he was a big college football fan, and he said, um, "I only watch football games one way anymore because my heart can't take it." And so I, I tape record, and he, he, he used the word tape record, okay, so you're, you're now getting an idea, I'm just, I'm busting on him, um, so he, he records them ahead of time, and, he, and then he, people are like, well, you, you don't like look at the score ahead of time, do you? He goes, oh no, I, every time I do. And then he goes, and then here's what I do, the games that our team loses, I don't watch those games. But the ones that they win, I watch. And then I watch through them, and every, every play that happens, every up and down along the way, I am 
cool as a cucumber. I'm just waiting to see how it all unfolds because I know the end of the story. And I, I think oftentimes we don't remember the end of our story. And if we don't remember the end of our story, we don't actually know how to live this life. I mean, how in the world do you know what your job is for if you don't know what will happen at the end of our story? How do you know how to raise your kids and what to raise them for and who they might become if you don't know the end of our story? How do you enjoy life at all in the biblical sense of that word if you don't know the end of your story? It's important. And it's important at no more greater time than when we experience sudden tragedy. Um, there, there, I've, we, I've uh, experienced several sudden deaths in a very short period of time recently. Many of you know Lorraine Ryan and her passing um, just a month, a month ago, right? I mean, two months now. Gosh, it's hard to believe. Um, went in the hospital for an infection. Three days later, she's gone. But there have been others. There's a pastor that I enormously respected and loved who's part of a community that I have gained innumerable uh, wisdom from. It happens to be on the other side of the country. But the pastor of that community, his name was Randy Sheets, he committed suicide three weeks ago. And that just, it rocked me. Even recently, there a, a friend in ministry of mine uh, who had planted a church at one point in Camden and kind of, uh, because of health issues, kind of came away from that and was part of a few different communities. But somebody that, you know, we were all kind of really cheering for that, he would be able to overcome some of uh, the physical challenges that he had faced because of a car accident, major car accident several years ago. Um, He was in the hospital and got, they think, a blood clot, and he passed away. He's younger than I am, and he's left behind a wife and two kids. The pastor in in Seattle and in Tacoma left behind four kids, all under the age of eight. And I mention these things because I personally I've been wrestling with like, does the source of my hope and the end of our story give me the resources not just to endure these things, but to live through them with hope? To to be able to grasp something so real that it makes these temporary tragedies seem just temporary rather than like they're going to last forever. Can our hope sustain us through the darkness that we experience today? I was reminded of uh, a scene from The Lord of the Rings. It's one of my favorite series of movies and favorite uh, book series um, if you don't know what the Lord of the Rings are about, shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, um, they, they're primarily about uh, two friends, Frodo and Samwise Gamgee. And, and 
these two friends um, are tasked with bringing this ring uh, back to kind of the place that it was made in order to to destroy it. And they go from their little hobbit village called the Shire uh, through Middle Earth to the deepest, darkest territory. And... um, and so along the way, they're, they're tempted to use the ring for good, even though it's an instrument of evil. And it never goes well. Anytime somebody tries to use the ring, it always goes sour on them, and it ends up distorting them, and they become a slave to the enemy. And uh, they have a guide along the way, and that guide's name is Gandalf. And he's like the wise mentor who's shepherding them along the way and giving them counsel and wisdom and correcting them when they're wrong. And, and you think every time Gandalf is around, like things are going to go okay. But you think if, if that guy ever gets taken out, forget it. Like the story's over. And one of the things that happens is along the way to, uh, to defeat the enemy, Gandalf is taken from them. Sorry. I mean, it's been out for a while now, so if you haven't seen it, you know. But he's taken from them, and Sam thinks he's dead. Sam just, he's gone. He's never going to see his friend Gandalf again. And eventually, though, against all odds, Sam and Frodo, they end up destroying the ring, and they defeat the darkness. And in the process, Sam is knocked unconscious. And he doesn't wake up until sometime later. But he wakes up on this bed, and the sun is shining, and who's standing over him laughing and smiling but his friend Gandalf? And he's shocked. I mean, he never thought he would see him again. And so this is what Sam says. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then, it, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? This is what we see unfolding before our eyes in Revelation 21. It's the answer to Sam's question. That because of the first Christmas, Jesus coming in the form of a human, and the Christmas to come, yes, everything sad is going to come untrue. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And there is great hope because everything sad is going to come untrue. That what, what God began in Jesus, He will do for the whole universe, including you and me. That this is our true story. Now, that's, the, that's a picture, if you will, of the, the end of our story. But here's the, the deal. I think the major reason that we lack hope today is because our imagination for that day has been hijacked. It's, it's been short-circuited by lesser stories of hope. And there are two versions of hope that I think are imitations that were often taught that actually rob us of this kind of joyful longing that we were meant to have as people who were waiting for our king. They're sort of alternative myths. Now, here, here's the first one. It's the myth of progress. How, how many of you have ever been to, the, to Tomorrowland in Magic Kingdom and rode the carousel of progress. How many of you have been to Magic Kingdom and you're like, I don't, I don't see the point of riding the, the carousel of progress. <laughs> it's not one of those rides that you need a fast pass for, right? Because it's like, it's, you know, it's showing its age a little bit. Um, 
But it represents something. It represents a myth which says that we can have hope because everything is just going to get better and better and better. That science and technology are going to solve all our problems and give us the life that we want. Um, and, and so, so what, here's what happens on this ride. You, you kind of go into it and it's this rotating stage show and it moves throughout different uh, eras of time in American history. And in and, and every era, the people within that scene say pretty much the same thing. Gosh, n- n- things couldn't get better than they are right now. You know, we've got this, and we've got this, and we've got this, and they just list off all the inventions. And then after every scene, it, the, the carousel turns, and it says there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow just around the bend. And then you arrive at the next one. And then the very last one is sort of the technological 21st century. And, and the kids are, and the parents are all playing this v- virtual reality game. They all got like the headsets on. And uh, the grandmother is playing as well. And she gets like the highest score, I guess, that she's ever gotten. And she, and she yells out, 550! And then when she yells that out, the, the oven, which is hearing them talk, thinks to set the temperature to 550, and then the, the Christmas turkey gets burned. This is like the major issue that's happening in the home, is that you know, the turkey gets burned because the, the, the machine misheard them. And, and the dad goes, well, maybe someday there will be devices that read our minds, and so they'll know what we mean. And then the son says in reply, Don't worry, Dad. Someday everything will be so automated that you won't ever have to cook another Christmas turkey ever again. And everyone laughs, and the dog barks, and the carousel spins, and it says there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow just around the corner. And the the message is clear, is is that science and technology are going to give us the progress that we so desire. It's going to right every wrong. And sometimes this gets confused with Christian hope. And when, when we talk about hope, people think that what we mean is that things are going to get better and better, that, that someday there's going to be a cure for cancer and a cure for this and, a, and, a, and a, a solution for that. But here's the problem with this myth. It doesn't do anything for the people that are experiencing the problems today. It doesn't do a thing for them. I mean, yeah, you can laugh about the fact that you burnt the Christmas turkey, but I can't go to Randy's widow and his four kids and say, I'm sorry that your dad committed suicide, but eventually we'll invent a pill that's going to stop depression. I can't go to Rob's widow and say to Victoria, I'm sorry your husband died of all those complications from car accidents, but eventually we'll have cars that drive themselves. You can see how hollow that is. It's a consolation prize. You know what a consolation prize is? It's the thing that you get when you don't get what you really want. And that's all the myth of progress is. It's a consolation prize at best, and it's, a, it's salt in the wounds at worst. It can't deal with the very real presence of evil in this world. Because everything isn't getting better and better for all of our achievements. 
So we can't locate our hope there. Now here's the second one. Second kind of imitation of, of hope that we are often taught and sold is the myth of escape. It's the myth of escape. It's, 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 everything's not getting better and better. In fact, everything's getting worse and worse. And so our best hope that we could possibly have is just to be whisked away from all the brokenness to this utopia thing called heaven. And we will play harps on a cloud sort of in this disembodied state. And we'll just, it'll be a perpetual worship service all the time. And so don't worry if things look bad because you're going to get raptured out of here. Just hang on a little bit longer. And, and you know what? Other people, they're going to be left behind. And they'll deal with all the brokenness. You don't have to get your hands dirty. And it sounds so attractive. And it sounds so biblical. But it's not. It's not. In fact, it, it doesn't come from a Christian worldview at all. It actually comes out of Plato, a Greek philosopher. Plato had this idea that the material world is actually evil and corrupt. It's, it's sort of beyond repair, and so it needs to be escaped, not, not redeemed. It can't be redeemed. So let's just get on out of here. And so in this myth, the greatest hope that we could possibly have is that our, our immaterial, our souls, if you will, would leave this, our evil bodies behind and that we'll be in this sort of disembodied bliss with God. No earth, no bodies, no mess of physicalness at all. And I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to apologize ahead of time. I, I, I kind of ragged on Mary Did You Know last week. And I had to apologize to like three different people this week because it's like one of their favorite songs. And that wasn't my intention. I wasn't trying to like, you know, um, I think it was, that song is very well-intentioned and I've, some of the themes in it are, are good. Um, so forgive me. But now I'm going to offend you on a whole different group of songs. <laughs> um, because the, there are songs that have made their way into our, kind of the way that we think about uh, the end of our story that I think we have to question a little bit. Songs like This World Is Not My Home. You know, I'm just a passing through. Or even, uh, and this is one of my favorite ones. I love this song. I, I've sung it all the time, but the, the song I'll Fly Away has this same kind of like just a few more weary days and then I'm out and other people are going to have to deal with this. And so in this kind of, the way of thinking about this, that God's creation, which he said is good, this world that we live in is at best uh, irrelevant to us, and at worst it's like the Titanic, and we just sort of got to get onto a life raft and get off of it before it all goes to hell in a handbasket. And many of us grew up with this story as kind of the primary way that we thought about the end of all things. But it does deep damage. In fact, it does deep damage to our witness in the world. I remember I had a, a friend in college who, uh, who said to me one time, we were talking about um, Jesus, and, and he confided in me and he said this, I could never be a Christian because there are too many things in this world that I care about, and it seems like all Christians care about is getting out of here. And I thought, 
So I remember I tried to debate him on that point and, and help him to see that like this isn't what Christians think. And then the longer that I've been part of the kind of the Christian world, I've realized, you know what? He's, he's kind of right. But if, see, if God made the world good, if he sent his son into it, not to rescue us out of it, but to start an invasion process by which one day everything that will be made new, then he cares deeply about this world. In fact, he cares far more than you do, far more than my friend did. And, and, and in the sense to, to, to bring down that sense of hope to like, well, let's just get out of here, doesn't that mean that the, the evil wins in the end? If God can't redeem the world that he created, if he can't make it new, if he's powerless to stop the forces of his enemy, not just in heaven but on earth, then doesn't that mean that the enemy grabs some kind of victory from God's hand in the end? But that's not what we proclaim. That's not what, what we see. In fact, we, we don't see either of these myths at work in Revelation 21. They're, they're cheap caricatures of the true hope that Jesus invites us to imagine as we read about this new heavens and new earth. He says in, in verse 5, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. See, God isn't just on a mission to make the world a little bit better for the next generation. And he's not just on a mission to get us out of here. God is on a mission to make everything new. And he says, this is trustworthy and true. In other words, don't live your life only trusting what your eyes can see, but set your vision on the new creation that I'm bringing. In a sense, I want this picture that I'm painting for you, John, and for the people that are going to read what you write to be the thing that you base your entire life on. That everything sad will come untrue. That the first Christmas, in a sense, began an irreversible flood of God's kingdom on earth and that the second Christmas will finish the job once and for all. And so you don't need to hedge your bets. You don't need to put them on smaller hopes with lesser returns. We get to put every chip that we have on this hope and this hope alone. And and I think the reason that Jesus says to John, hey, like make sure that you write this down, is because that we're we're so prone to forget. And in our forgetting, we, we, we put our hope on lesser things that can't bear the weight of what we are made, made to hope for. Uh, Mandy and I were talking about this, and she, she always um, loves the Christmas season and like secretly despises Christmas Day. Anybody resonate with her? Can you guess why? Not a secret anymore. No, it's not. No. <laughs> 
She, she told me I could share that, by the way. <laughs> it's because she loves the anticipation, and she loves the season, and she loves the, everything that goes in with it, the more time spent with family and with friends, and, and, and the cookies, and the, the, the parties, and the gatherings, and the decorations. She, she loves all of that. And so Christmas, in a sense, for her, doesn't signal the arrival of something. It signals the end of something. And she realized, she was going, I realized, like, I wake up on Christmas morning giddy, and then we go through all the things again, and all the presents are unwrapped, and now we're just sitting around, and it's the same family that we had in November. <laughs> and I real, and, and, like, this small part of her wonders, like, what's changed? Has anything changed? And that, that is so often the experience that we have when we put our chips on other things. Yeah, I mean, you know, like if you put one chip on black and it comes up that color, you're going to double your investment. But so what? Now you have $2 instead of one. But we don't want to put all of our chips on that one place where if it comes up with that number, we will be rich for eternity. And Jesus says, I want you to put all of them on me. Because he says in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from every eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And I mean, I was reading that and going, Holy cow, there is a great big beautiful tomorrow. (laughs) But it doesn't come because... We, we figured it out. And it doesn't come because we avoided the pain. It comes in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of our tears. You know, the, the fact that God Himself wipes away tears presupposes that you will be crying when it happens. Right? Which means don't kill your heart and try to escape from reality and don't just think that things are going to get better and better and better so look on the bright side. It's not about being a pessimist or being an optimist. It's about being someone who looks at the new creation and says because Jesus has risen from the dead, that reality is coming. I love that God insists on being the one to wipe away our tears himself. He doesn't just like relegate it to some heavenly lackey to do it. He's the one. Because he wants us to know that he's the one who's going to finish the job himself. We don't have to wait for another. We don't have to hope for another. It's coming. Now, the cynic in me, and maybe the cynic in you, uh, has a question kind of like bubbling up in the surface, like in the back, you know, where you're like, okay, yeah, that's all great news, but, w- you know, he's going to do that in the future, right? Like, how does that help me today? How does this change the way that I live now? And I'm, I'm thank you for asking that question, by the way. I mean, that's, that's where I was going. I don't know if that's where you were going. Um, but there is a, There is an answer to that question because having this sight, if you will, having this ability to see what Jesus is doing at the end of our story 
helps us, not just uh, helps a bad word, it enables us, it gives us the, the ability, the power, the resources to deal with two things. It's to deal with the sad and the glad. And we need help dealing with both of those things. Dealing with both the sad things that we experience today as well as the good things, the glad things that God brings. So let me just share with you a little bit about each of those. It makes all the difference in the world when it comes to the sad things. Now here's why. It's because, isn't it true that if this is the reality that we're all destined for, then isn't it the person with the greatest ability to see the world to come? Isn't it that person with the greatest foresight, if you will, that has the greatest ability to see through the brokenness of this world? To see through the tears and through the pain and through the loss and through the death. To see that the sad things are the illusion and that the new creation is the reality. See, if you have this sight, then that means that when sad things come, and they will, you don't need to turn your back. You don't need to pretend that they're not as bad as they really are. When the, when the pain comes, when the loss is experienced, when even death sweeps through your life, that you, you, you would be able to see that temporary thing is not the new normal, but is the thing that, yes, even though it's come, it's on its way out the door. I mean, this is exactly what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 16 to 18. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles... Just so you know, like Paul has been stoned, he has been whipped, he has had people taken from him, he's been thrown in jail. Like this isn't somebody who you go, oh, well, obviously he's had an easy life. No, this is someone with a a tremendously difficult life. And he says these are momentary troubles and that they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so here's what we do. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, Not on the temporary sadness, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary. And what is unseen is eternal. Do you see it? Uh, How how many of you watched Scooby-Doo growing up? I love Scooby-Doo. I was a kid who was like afraid of everything. Growing up, like, I, I had a bunk bed, it was up high, and I just, I imagined that, like, underneath my bunk bed was, like, the, uh, like, innumerable monsters. Like, I was just, like, that kind of imaginative kid where I was, like, always scared of something all the time. And I loved Scooby-Doo because it was the one show that had ghosts and monsters and ghouls and goblins. But what happened at the end of every episode of Scooby-Doo? Every one, they're like, oh, he looked like he was a scary monster, but it turns out it was Larry the janitor. Larry's not scary, you know? And like Shaggy and Scooby are like, I knew it all along, you know? They're like, you guys were the ones that were running the fastest from this guy, you know? 
They were the scaredest the whole time. And then at the end, they're like, ha, I knew it, you know? But the the scary thing gets unmasked for what it is. And when it's brought into the light of day, everybody goes, oh, maybe it wasn't so powerful after all. I think something of what Paul is saying is that if the unseen reality of the new creation is the real story and everything else is temporary, if you if you fix your eyes on it and know that it's coming, then, then you can look at every other sadness and go, you're not so scary to me anymore. Because what can you do to me? Nothing that can't be undone. Nothing that God won't overturn. Nothing that He won't in the end say, I've made this new and I've wiped this away too. So here's the question. What sad thing are you afraid to face? What what sadness, what... What thing feels overwhelming to you that you've been avoiding because you can't look it in the face? You can't look it in the eye. You can't can't turn to it and say to it, you can't do anything to me. Jesus is inviting you. He's calling us to live today with new eyes set upon the Christmas to come. This is our good news. Whatever is He... Whatever you've done or whatever's been done to you, there is hope for you because God is bringing heaven to earth. He's renewing all things. He's, he's making everything sad come untrue. And this is our true story. Now, there's the flip side of this, and I'll just mention this briefly, is that it makes all the difference in the world, not just for the sad things, but for the glad things. Because I, I think the way that we interpret when good things come into our life has everything to do with the way that we receive those gifts uh, when we have them. And so here's the thing. If, If a new creation is coming and the good things in our lives are foretastes of that new good thing that will will make everything better, then the good things that you have in this life, they're not anomalies to an otherwise cruel world. They're not the exception. They're the new norm. See, and if they're a foretaste of the day when heaven and earth comes and Jesus makes everything new, then that means, guess what? You don't have to hold on to them as though they're the only good thing you will ever have. And I think we do this all the time. We do this with our homes and we make them into monuments and castles unto ourselves and we think, man, if I ever lost this home, I wouldn't know who I am. And so we, we hold on to it and we go, no, I, if this ever got taken from my hand, I, I'd be a wreck. No, it's, it's just the down payment on the world that you get to participate in. Your kids, you you don't have to rule their lives and dominate their futures and tell them everything to do and and hope and wish and pray upon every shooting star that they don't move too far away from you. Because in the end, they'll be part of the same creation that you will. And you'll have a closer, 
better, more holy relationship with them than you ever had prior to the new heavens and the new earth coming. You see? Some of us live uh, life in perpetual um, terror that the things that we have are going to be taken away from us. Um, Did you notice at the very beginning it says that there's no sea in this new world? Did you notice that? What is that all about? Like, and I, I love to sail. I have a sailboat. I, this is one of my favorite pastimes. And I, like, I wrestle with this verse because I'm like, does this mean that God's going to, like, take away, like, my, my most favorite pastime? <laughs> you know? Like, they're like, those of you who love the beach, you'll just be sitting on hot sand, staring at more hot sand. You know? Like, yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound too, too uh, enticing. I went to the desert this week. I went down the desert this weekend. <laughs> you know? But the, the, the sea for the ancient mind actually was a metaphor for chaos. It, in ancient times, it was where all the monsters rose from. You know, to, to, to my, like, you know, eight-year-old mind, it was the place under my bed where you just don't know what's out there. And, and it's a place of like unknown terrors that might jump up and grab you at any time and take away the things that, that are dearest to you. I mean, th- think of living on the seashore and having a hurricane come and sweep your house away. The sea is a terrifying place. It's a place where foreign armies come to dominate. Now look at the new creation. Where is this sense of everything good being taken away from you in the new creation? It's gone. God Himself has swept away evil and chaos and there's no place for them to hide anymore. There is no under the bed. There is no sea. There is no deep, dark closet where you're like, oh gosh, what's going to come out of there and get me next? And that means that you don't, you no longer have to live in dread of when the next calamity is going to hit or when the next loved one's going to be taken away or when the next crisis is going to come that you have to overcome because all those things are going to pass away and everything sad will come untrue. The good things that you that God brings into your life, they don't have to be clutched onto as though they're going to be ripped from your hands. They get to be embraced as the first payment on a new creation that God is bringing. We live in the reality between two Christmases. The first Christmas came to enable us to see that the second one is coming. And that means that whatever today brings for you, it will never take away that reality. There is nothing that could occur to you today that will change the end of this story. Does this sound too good to be true? It does. I remember I was talking to, to, to Mandy after last week. I was kind of struggling with um, 
<clears throat> just finding sort of the heart and the center uh, of the message. And I said to her, um, I know when I've stumbled upon the gospel of Jesus Christ when it sounds too good to be true, but I want to believe it anyway. If this sounds too good to be true for you, I just want to invite you to meet the truth himself because the truth has a name. His name is Jesus. And he is risen from the dead. And because of that, he will come again to bring new creation. This is our true story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to live in this new world that you're bringing. Forgive us, we pray, that for all the lesser hopes that we've set our eyes on because we're trying to hedge our bets because we're unsure that this could possibly be true. I pray that you'd give us new eyes to see. New eyes to see the sad things in our life and the glad things. And that every sad thing will come untrue. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.